I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Tears of Eden, a nonprofit supporting survivors of spiritual abuse from the evangelical community and home of the Uncertain podcast, is hosting its first in-person retreat con October 20th through 22nd. This retreat con will have the intimacy of a retreat with the intentionality of a conference. In partnership with the I Got Out movement, the retreat con will also feature a special event story jam highlighting survivor stories live and in person. Registration is currently open and spots are limited. Sign up with a link in the show notes. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by the generosity of listeners like you. If you'd like to see the work of Tears of Eden continue, consider giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly supporter. You can do that by visiting tearsofeden.org support. Second wave fundamentalism is a term acknowledging that we can leave fundamentalist spaces, but they do not always leave us. How do we recognize when we are creating the same pattern and the same spaces we tried to leave behind? And how do we care for ourselves and our own trauma healing so we don't migrate toward and recreate the unsafe communities we fought so hard to escape? This is my interview with Dr. Laura Anderson, who is the co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute and the founder of Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. She's a licensed therapist and professor of psychology. Her highly anticipated book, When Religion Hurts You, releases in October 2023. Here's my interview with Dr. Laura Anderson. I have been looking forward to chatting with you for like a couple months, actually, <laughs> very specifically about, I'm calling it second wave fundamentalism. Yeah, I don't know if that's an official term. I don't know if I read that somewhere on Instagram. Yeah. But it's, and it's actually like really personal. We, I was going to talk to you about purity culture. And then I saw the stuff that you were posting on your Instagram about just leaving fundamental spaces, taking fundamentalism with us into these other spaces. And it's, it's really personal for me. It's also just in the work that I do with survivors of abuse from churches, which are typically fundamentalists. And I am watching, it's a very small world. It's a very small community. A lot of us know each other and I'm watching these little communities pop up Mm -hmm. and intend to care for survivors. And then the same things start happening in those communities. And a couple of weeks ago, I was like, I had just gotten off the phone with someone who was telling me about like another situation. And then I called another friend and I was very disheartened. And I was like crying on the phone because I was like, what do we do? What do we do? And as I'm talking to her, I like feel my body. I'm like, I feel the pull to want an answer. Yes. Yeah. A right answer to say, all we need is accountability or all we need is this Bible. Like I, I was like, this is how it happens. Like I'm so I'm dysregulated and I want someone to tell me what to do. Yeah. I do these things. Yes. Then everything will be fine. And that I was like, that's it. That's the pull. That's what pulls us to this and why we keep going back to this and why it makes so much sense that as trauma survivors are creating this (laughs) like it makes so much sense so I've been so excited to talk to you about it because I'm very much enjoying your Instagram material and first of all like how would you describe fundamentalism fundamentalism yeah you describe fundamentalism and high control religious groups kind of the same thing 
Yeah, I I like the term fundamentalism. It's traditionally subscribed to religion, but I don't think religion has the corner market on it. We see this in so many spaces. The way I de- I define fundamentalism is a thing is a way of thinking and relating to others and to the world, and it's a very rigid set of rules that guarantee specific outcomes or are at least supposed to lead to specific outcomes. And so that doesn't have to be exclusive to religion. We see this in wellness groups. We see this in different like communities that prescribe to specific ways of eating or exercising. We see this in spirituality groups. We see this in political groups. We see this in families. We see this all over the place. Fundamentalism is not just for religion. But of course, we see it within religion. And so there's a huge crossover. I sometimes use the the terms interchangeably, high control religion, fundamentalism, but we're looking at dynamics of power and control within that system. So here's the rules that you must follow, what you must believe, how you must think, how you must act, dress, eat, feel, like all the things. If you don't, it could be anything from like, you're not accepted as a part of this group to you have sin in your life that you must repent of all the way to, we don't believe you're a true believer. You're going to hell or we're disfellowshipping you or excommunicating you from our church. And so we see that a lot, especially in the spaces that we're working in. If people are now coming out of that and going, wow, everything was so prescriptive. There wasn't room for autonomy or individuality, free thought, critical thinking, anything like that. So fundamentalist groups really remove all of that for a list of prescriptive living and thinking and relating. And I would say that typically it doesn't start as a power grab or as a control grab. It starts to meet a human need of certainty, right? Like we like to feel safe and stable. That's a human need. And we believe as humans, we're evolved to this point of thinking, oh, that would come through like really you do this and you do this and you do this. This provides a sense of certainty, which gives us the illusion of safety and fundamentalism gets it. They go, yeah, we can do that. So let's just prescribe all this and then we're good to go. But it always goes further than just that. You know, it starts off as something that feels really almost liberating because now I have this like rules for living and then it turns into that taking over my life. And I now really don't exist. I just am kind of a cog in this system. Yeah. And I have like so many just like (laughs) examples in my mind, but would you, could you give just an example of like a, like a real time, like this is an example of fundamentalism. Like within the church context or outside? Uh, Both. (laughs) So, you know, we see this a lot, you know, Purity culture is something that I've been talking about a little bit more. So purity culture is very prescriptive. Here is, here's, first of all, very defined roles of gender. Here's what each gender must look like, sound like, act like, all these things. If you don't do that, there are differing consequences for what what it is that you have done, whether it is you're supposed to be a submissive woman and you're not, well, that means you're probably not going to get a godly husband because you're not respectful. You can't, nobody, you won't let anybody lead you. Right. So that's this, this, here's this way to date. And if you do it this way, you're going to get this godly marriage with out of this world sex and everything is going to be perfect. So that would be like an example of fundamentalism, like in a religious context, 
outside of a religious context. I think something we see a lot are like is within like social justice issues or p- politics where we'll say, if you, if you want to be a true ally of this group, you have to do these things. You have to say these things. You have to post these things. You have to have this response. You must speak out at least this many times. You must have this number of different diversities in your personal life, in your professional life. You must believe these things about these social justice or political issues. And if you don't, you're not a safe person. You're not a part of our group. You're too woke. You're too, you're a sheep. You're a, you know, too conservative. You're like all, we have these different terms, right? And, and so then basically it's like, there's a a prescriptive box of like, if you want to be on whatever the right side is, here's Mm -hmm. the way that you live and think and eat and breathe. And outside of that, you're a dangerous person. So if you don't follow these rules Mm -hmm. determined by who knows who, right? Right. You're not a safe person. Just like in the church, if you don't follow these rules, they may not use the word safe, like you're not a safe person, but they might say you're sinning. You're not a true believer, right? So there's, there's this really like sharp cutoff. Like if you don't do these things, there's this consequence that leads towards disconnection. Yeah. And the floundering, I'm really glad that you gave the outside of religious space example, because in that, in that, what would draw someone to that Mm -hmm. environment and to the book that says you must do this or the YouTube videos or whatever is going to be somebody who really wants to do the right thing. Absolutely. They're looking for, you are an expert. You've studied this. Tell me what to do. Yeah. So it makes sense that we get sucked in. Yeah. Well, and when you think about if you grow up, so many people have grown up inside of like a high control or fundamentalist religious space, right? One of the things we know that is not usually taught is critical thinking, right? There's, there's prescriptive thinking, right? Here's what we believe on every single thing. So as long as you just like follow those rules, you're quote unquote good inside the system, But there's not space for curiosity. There's not space for thinking outside that, asking questions, having doubts, being uncertain, checking different things out. So there's, so really like, it's like those are muscles that haven't been worked and flexed before, right? So when we get out of those spaces, we may be able to cognitively say like, I don't want, that's not how I want to live my life anymore. That's, I want to be able to be free to think and ask questions and, and really truly mean that. But when push comes to shove, when all we know is prescriptive fundamentalist beliefs, that is the most familiar, easy thing to slide into just with a different message, right? So it's not necessarily because you're wanting to be controlled by somebody else's beliefs about what the world should be. It's just going, I've never even developed skills of how to reflect, of how to be a critical thinker, of how to tune into my body how to say no, how to employ curiosity, look to see where's a balance area. Why do I believe certain things? Is that right for me? That's just like devoid. There's not a skill set there. And so it then that is a very scary place to be, right? You feel like the ground is falling out underneath you. Though we may not love all the fundamentalist rules, it does provide at least the illusion of certainty and stability. And so when we have somebody else then outside of a religion promoting that, 
And we go, I don't like this way this that I feel internally because I don't have these rules anymore. Then those other things start, start to become really appealing because they provide, again, that illusion of safety and stability and certainty. And that, again, then goes back to this very human need. Yeah. yeah. So kind of crazy. <laughs> well, yeah. And then the, the, the second wave fundamentalism is yeah. doing the exact opposite in mm-hmm. the same way. And yeah. like in my world, we are activists against abuse in the church, but mm-hmm. it just becomes this like also very militant, a lot of gatekeeping, just a lot of the same things. Yeah. Yeah. Just against <laughs> the like, thing that told us to be against the yeah. other. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm sure, you know, I don't want to like make assumptions, but you may have noticed like in like say deconstruction or post-faith or post-religion religious communities, there have been from time to time, I call them like kabooms. And it's almost always around some of this, like who are you quote unquote allowed to listen to, who is quote unquote allowed to speak who have been determined to be the people that have wisdom and insight and who have been the people that have been determined by who knows, you know, who's dangerous, who's unsafe, who's harmful. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, we see this all the time and I don't think it's coming again from like this place of people going, I want to control all the people coming out of religion. We're just replicating what's been taught to us and not recognizing how fundamentalism lives in our bodies. And then we just, promote it over and over again. That's why, like, I, I think cognitive deconstruction is so important, but if you don't connect the body to it, we might think certain things, but our body is still functioning the same as it did in fundamentalism. And that's where we start to get what you're calling second wave fundamentalism, which I think is like a really beautiful term for that. Not description because it's accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's just repeating the same, the same type of thing, just in a completely different space with a different, with a different Bible, with a different thing to do. Talk a little bit about, well, first the role that deconstruction plays and mm-hmm. then how that, as you said, even if we have deconstructed and we have all the, you know, the things and we're like breaking down the scriptures and this wasn't accurate and blah, blah, blah. It still lives in our bodies and yeah. things. Yeah. So one of the, the ways that our brain and body works together, like we use neuroscience to explain that. So when messages come in over time, whether it's repeated messages or overwhelming messages and experience, they create what we call neuropathways in our brain. And then those neuropathways create chemicals. They send them down to our bodies. And so what it starts to do is, okay, this message comes in to our brain. It alerts the rest of our body. Here's the response that we have. Um, so we go, gosh, you know, I, I knew, you know, when I was a kid, anytime that the pastor got that look in his eye or used that tone or started waving his finger, I immediately started to feel guilty and convicted because, you know, I knew he was going to tell me what a sinner I was. And now here I am 20 years later and I'm like, oh my gosh, that was such a power grab. That was such a control grab. That was blah, 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 blah. I don't believe any of that. I don't believe I have to be feel feeling guilty or convicted, but gosh, like my partner or my friend or my whatever gets that look in their eye. And all of a sudden I'm that kid sitting back in church again. 
And we oftentimes get confused because we're like, well, I don't believe that message, but it's living in our body. And that doesn't mean it has to stay that way. But I think that's one of the pieces that is starting now to be talked about a bit more. But when we talk about deconstruction, we're primarily talking about untangling the beliefs that we were taught, whether it's about specific issues or big general issues. And that oftentimes is an entryway into kind of religious trauma healing and, you know, whatever your recovery path might look like, but simply untangling beliefs does not necessarily untangle how those beliefs have lived and functioned in your body. I remember, I want to say this was probably 10, 12 years ago. I, one of the things that really like was a deciding factor of leaving religion was the way that LGBTQ folks were treated. And I had so many friends within that community and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't not see it. Right. Right. And so I remember one day I was on a walk with a friend of mine and there was this gay couple walking towards us, super cute, holding hands, just, you know, like be, you know, I don't know, maybe on a first date or something being generally cute. And I remember my first instinct was like, Oh, right. And I was like, And I caught myself in that moment. I was like, that's really weird because here's these, you know, like this list of friends that I have, I don't cognitively believe these things. In fact, that actually drove me out of the church. And yet my body just had this physiological response. And I recognized in that moment, because that's what my body was taught to do when I quote unquote saw sin. Here's this like sin, quote unquote, sinful couple in front of me. And I'm like repulsed initially was like repulsed by it because that's what my body had been trained to do over decades. Yeah. For me, I had to then tune back in to that, like, okay, what's happening there? Okay. There's this feeling of disgust. If I let myself kind of focus on that and notice what needs to happen next, can I kind of move that through my body and then give my body a chance to like, kind of get that out of me, release it, shake it out. Right. And be really aware that they, maybe the next time I see somebody doing something that was formerly supposed to be gross or sinful or disgusting or whatever it is, I'm going to really pay attention to what's coming up and make orient myself to my surroundings and be like, okay, I'm not in a church anymore. This is a lovely human in front of me. So that's just an example of how that works together. But Cognitive deconstruction is wonderful. It's often very necessary. It just isn't necessarily complete. Right. Yeah. 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 And you, and you have, you've got to have both, like they they both need to happen. And, and that is another, I I would say another example of the, the fundamentalism remaining with us as we came from these very cerebral spaces. Mm -hmm. So then we address it with a very cerebral cognitive deconstruction. And then we just stay there. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Feel safe in our bodies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have, I, I'm the, the example for me of like ways that my body still holds it is like, I know that these spaces set us up to see mm-hmm. white men as the voices of authority and stru- trust. And yeah. even though I know that. <laughs> and even though I know mm-hmm. men are not more intelligent or more right. like, gifted or better at hearing the voice of God than women, yeah. I'll still catch myself right. migrating. Even if I hate that it's happening, like I'll still yeah. do it. And I've had to just sort of like, kind of like 
reframe a little bit of just kind of like exposing myself to like female teachers who are teaching in a very different way because they have a different ends because they came from a different space and and just you know have like basically like train my body to trust someone that is identifies as female and it still happens though it still happens (laughs) Well, you know, there's a lot of people, especially like in social media spaces, that'll be like, you know, I'm unlearning this, I'm unlearning that. And neuroscientifically, that's very inaccurate. And I don't always get caught up on like terms and, you know, whatever. But there are certain things that when we see them on social media and they are either misexplained, misdefined, misdiagnosed, that actually can cause a lot of confusion, sometimes even harm. And that idea of unlearning is one of them. The way our brains work, because they're plastic, right? Neuroplasticity is not that we truly unlearn. Like we never forget the lessons that we are learned, but we know that neurons that fire together, well, the the statement is neurons that fire together, wire together. So what that means is that when a message is repeated, you know, in this case, so you know, women shouldn't teach in church. Okay. We hear that over and over and over those neural pathways just start firing together so that it becomes almost this subconscious thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're looking to change that. We don't unlearn it so that like, we just never, ever think about that again. Yeah. What we look to do is create new neural pathways that are firing stronger. So the more that those new neural pathways of going, it's actually okay for women to teach. Wow, this person has a lot of wisdom. Wow, I never thought about it that way. We're looking to get some new neural pathways that are firing together. And as those increase, The other ones, it's like they become a bit more dormant. Now they might still rear their head from time to time. And that can often feel very confusing because we're like, God, I haven't thought about that. Or I haven't believed that in such a long time. And oh, here it's popping up again. But if we can give ourselves permission to not judge ourselves and just be curious to say, Hey, I wonder why that is that came up or, Oh, that's interesting. Well, I'm not going to really give that much credence, but like it is really cool that this person said this, what we're doing then is we're shifting and we're saying, yep, that was something I used to believe. I no longer believe it. The neural pathways aren't firing together as much anymore. I'm going to move over to this side here and, you know, focus on what I do believe. I think that's an important thing to note as well. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's, that's a helpful thing to know that like, if, especially if that message has been ingrained mm-hmm. everywhere for years, yeah not having a goal of eradicating it and just getting rid of it. Yes. Like it's gonna be there. Yeah. It's just giving yourself joy and happiness in something else so yeah. that you want yeah. to migrate towards the thing. Exactly. That's exactly it. You may already know this, but the Uncertain Podcast is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show. So when we experience trauma a lot of times it can lead to us feeling unsafe in our bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Part of this process of 
leaving fundamentalism, outgrowing fundamentalism, however we want to say it, is not just cognitive, it is embodied. So what what do we do when, when that piece needs to happen, but then we can unsick in our bodies? Yeah, so there's kind of two parts, I would say, to answering that question while still recognizing that it's going to look different for everybody. The first is getting in our body. And then the second part is like, how do we like, release the fundamentalist messages because one of the fundamentalist messages is your body is untrustworthy is unsafe it is i'm so, sorry it's untrustworthy. just as i got a phone call yeah i literally just got a phone call and i was like, oh, I forgot to put it on do not disturb. i know i need i was waiting for my doctor's office to call i forgot that i had it okay it's back on do not disturb anyways <laughs> So yeah, so one of the fundamentalist messages, of course, is your body is evil, your body is not safe, right? So we have to like, first kind of like dip into our body before we sometimes can tackle how those messages live in our body. Because the thing is, when we're talking trauma, kind of a a definition sometimes that I'll give is like trauma is anything that's too much, too fast, too soon, that overwhelms our ability to cope and come back to a, a baseline or a place of safety. Now the too much, too fast, too soon does not have to necessarily be what we might consider negative. Yeah. It can be too much of a good thing as well. So if we're going to like cannonball into embodiment and we've never had any experience in our body before, that can feel like too much. So I'm a big proponent of going at the pace of your own nervous system, which is usually slower. And so when we're looking at some of the embodiment things, we're looking for like little tiny subtle things that we can do to start to at least build some curiosity and hopefulness that our body could be a safe place to be. And it could be really anything from like, I'm going to pay attention to some cues that my body would already naturally give me. It might be hunger or satiation cues. It might be that I need to use the restroom. It might be that I'm tired. It might be that I need to move my body or stop moving my body. So I, you know, like, can I use some little tiny cues that maybe I'm already familiar with as a way to help me get into my body? And we build on it from there. When we look at then the piece of like, how do we get rid of these messages that live inside our body? That's going to come a from recognizing that our body is a safe enough place to be and like being able to access that, but then noticing, okay, when X, Y, Z message comes across, you know, my, my prefrontal cortex, what happens in my body? Right. So maybe, and and maybe it's not even a message. Maybe it's a tone of voice. Maybe it's a look, maybe it's a song that you hear on the radio station, whatever it might be. And I notice all of a sudden, oh my gosh, like my heart is beating really fast. My face is turning red. I feel like I want to get out of here. Okay. That's actually giving us some cues then that we're not feeling safe in this situation, which probably is likely how we felt back then, whenever back then was, but we didn't have access to our bodies or being able to get out of it. So that's where we might start to look at, okay, what would my body want to do? I just, I want to, I want to yell. I want to run. I want to bury my face in a pillow and scream and cry. Okay. Could we start to give our body some opportunities to do that? What we might call completing the trauma response cycle so that our body's not holding that energy in there that has been previously stuck. Is that making, I know it's a a complex process, but it, you know, trying to explain it a little bit more simply. Yeah. So maybe not attempting to address the fundamentalism in our bodies first, first start with just 
getting comfortable in your body and just like yes. being mm-hmm. in your body. Yeah. That's great. What are some forms of fundamentalism that we may not be aware that we're carrying with us and how can we continue the healing process? Yeah, that's such a good question because, you know, when we start to see it, we see it everywhere, right? Or we see the potential for it everywhere. So like we said at the beginning, we might see this in a variety of areas in our life, whether it is, you know, like to be a true sports fan of this particular or true team fan of this particular sport or team or whatever it is like here's what you do say where if you're going to be a vegan if you're going to be a yogi if you are going to be in this wellness if you're going to be a republican or conservative or democrat or liberal like here's your prescription right like here's what we believe here's what we say here's what we think and as long as you stay inside these parameters you're good yeah. Now, if you sway outside of those parameters, we might need to have a conversation, right? So we might start to notice that and that's more of like on a, on a kind of general level individually. Sometimes, you know, like if, if we can allow ourselves curiosity, especially curiosity without judgment. So maybe you want to call this mindfulness, whatever it is, notice where it is in you when somebody does something or says something, or you experience something and you go, well, that's not how it's supposed to be. It's this, it's that. Mm-hmm. If we can get curious about that, like, Hey, what is that for me? Why is it that I might need this person to do or say, or act exactly as I would want them to. And that's not to say that we can't have preferences or that we shouldn't compromise and sort in relationship with other people so that we're both getting needs met. But I'm talking, you know, like when I am, you know, having conversations with people just randomly, you know, in a bar or something, and they say, you know, this is how I think or believe or whatever they're talking about. And we're like, right. That's usually a spot for us to go. Am I carrying that sense of fundamentalism inside me? Am I consciously or subconsciously kind of promoting this idea that there are right ways to think or relate or act that I am now putting on you, you should be doing that too. And Mm -hmm. maybe even labeling that person as unsafe or harmful or dangerous or not somebody I'd want to be in relationship with simply because they are holding a different set of beliefs about something, right? I think it's in fundamentalist systems, we view difference as dangerous. And so that is something that we often carry with us. So starting to notice where is that popping up on an individual level? Where do I find people wholly or partially dangerous because they hold different beliefs or ways of doing life? And does that, are they actually dangerous? Or is that my own like need for them to be like me to make them safe? Yeah. And asking that question, like you said, curiosity, and then just like the compassion too, because we were also told in these spaces, your emotions don't matter. And so we're having a reaction. It would be very easy. And I've done this. I still do this. Like, your dumb emotions, just like shut it down and just like pretend like it's not happening because it's, I'm supposed to feel safe here. This is a safe place. And so it is kind of counteracting that fundamentalism to just listen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When people are like, well, what's the opposite of fundamentalism? (laughs) 
curiosity, (laughs) it's uncertainty, it's like allowance of other people to show up as who they are, as what they are, as well as for me to do that too. Now that doesn't mean like no consequences for how you show up, right? Like there's- Don't make decisions. It doesn't mean don't pursue things. Exactly. But it's just, it's giving- it's giving people freedom to live and think and whatever and and not having to control that, right? Yeah. For other people. You yeah. know, like there's so many people that I'm like, God, if you would just do this, this, and this, like I think your life could be so much better. And I have to step back and say, I want that for them. I can really appreciate my desire for genuine goodness for them. Uh-huh. And I can say not my circus, not my monkeys. Like, yes, that's not my role in their life. They've not asked me for advice. They have not asked me for insight. I have to just let them figure it out. And I also can really deeply wish the best for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think the title for this episode will be not my circus, not my I thought of another one as you were talking. I'm in a, I'm in a group of women that are, it's, it's a, it's a deconstruction group, but everyone different places. And some people are in the church. Some people are out of the church. Some people identify as Christian. Some people don't. And we have all kinds of conversations about all kinds of things. And one person made a comment the other night about therapists being the new pastor. Mm, and, yeah. and it was kind of like, they said it as like this positive thing, but I had a reaction to that because I'm like, we don't want to put therapists in that place either. That place be, and I can say that. I mean, I know that's going to set off alarms for people, but I'm like, I'm a mental health professional. You're a mental health professional. <laughs> like, We don't want people to put us <laughs> in that place <laughs> of the pedestal mm-hmm. and, and therapists who might be setting themselves up as I am the expert. Mm -hmm. They're doing that same thing. And, or to say like, how dare you listen to so-and-so because they're not a licensed mental health professional or, you know, like that, doing that same like gatekeeping, like, well, are they a licensed mental health professional? Are -hmm. they a licensed therapist? Yeah. I will very much echo the sentiment that I, as a therapist, as a coach have zero, even less than zero desire to be your guru, to be your guide, your pastor. Like I am so, I feel deeply like I have a lot of gratitude to be able to support people. Like, I feel like my role is sacred Mm -hmm. to, for people to trust me with their stories takes a brave person. Cause sometimes they don't even know me. Right? Like when you start therapy, but I don't want, I, I don't want to tell you what to do. I don't want you to look for me. I don't want you to wear a braces bracelet that says WWLD, right? Like what would Laura do? I know like with my practitioners at the center for trauma resolution and recovery, that's something that we talk about regularly, both as like a kind of like a practitioner care thing of like, really wanting to make sure that we're not creating dependency, but that we're modeling healthy relationships. But there are so many clients that we see, especially at first that really struggle when we're like turning it back to them to go, okay, what is that like for you? How would you want to act? Like, it's very hard coming out of fundamentalism to think on your own, to make decisions. It can be downright paralyzing, right? I I had a moment the other day and I told one of my best girlfriends this, I was like, 
I get why church can be so appealing. I was having a day where I was going to have to make some significant decisions. I was like, because I want somebody else to make these decisions for me. I want somebody else to just hand me the script that says, here is what you do. And, and then I'll do it. And I was like, and I know I don't actually want that, but there is something of an appeal to that. And so I think, especially when you're coming out of those systems, it does feel like, oh, you're just going to tell me what to do. Okay. Oh, I can just look to you to be the guide. I can look to you to show me what are the books I should read and how am I supposed to feel about this? Like it is really nice. And, and given all that we've come out out of, like, it makes a lot of sense, but I would be very cautious of anybody in mental health spaces or coaching spaces or help healing support spaces where like, follow me. I have all the keys to living, right? Right. That can be dangerous. Yeah. And I feel like it, it is a, I mean, again, this is not like a, <laughs> this is not the sign that they're doing it right, but yeah. a sign that they are, are not wanting that for themselves is elevating other people and elevating voices and sharing, you know, yeah. this person's good for this, this person, you know, like, just like, we're, we're all in this together. We're all doing this together. And I do want to say like, for the people who go, my therapist is my pastor or my guru, or I have my WWLD bracelet or whatever. Like, I want to affirm that that is perfectly normal, especially as we're, as we're getting out of this, because we are floundering. We don't know where do I step next? Is, is there shaky or stable ground beneath me? And so, so if you find a sense of comfort and safety in the relationship you have with your therapist or coach or mental health professional, whomever it is, and they can provide you with that sense of support and still keep pointing you back to yourself. I think that is like incredible because the hope would be that at some point you would be able to say like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm that therapist is kind of shifting into a different role in my life. Yeah. They're still there for support, but I don't, I don't need them the same way that I used to, because I've learned to trust myself. I've learned to develop my sense of intuition, my own wisdom. I can learn from other people. I can take what my therapist says. I can figure out what works for me. And so I think I just want to affirm that if you're at that point where you're like, I, my therapist is the person keeping me alive right now. Absolutely. And, and a good supporter, a good practitioner, a good therapist is going to be able to hold that space and also give you ample opportunities for you to show up in that session and for you to be the determiner of your path rather than a dependence on them. And just because that is the space that you find yourself in, in this very uncertain, ambiguous season, doesn't mean that that's, it's going to be that way the whole time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Might be for a little while. So yeah. So if you are hearing this and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm dependent on my therapist. Like it doesn't mean you're going to be there that whole time. No, not at all. Not a bad person. (laughs) Oh yeah. We're very normal actually. (laughs) Um, All right. I would love to hear about your book. Yes. Thank you. Coming out. Tell me all about it. I am too. So the book is called When Religion Hurts You, Healing from Religious Trauma and the Impact of High Control Religion. I'm excited about it. It's I took a lot of research from my own doctoral dissertation and looking at the themes of healing and 
technically what that means is like the book is less focused on like, here's all the things wrong with religion or, you know what, it's, it's not that at all. It's going, here's, here's some of the ways that religion can be harmful, can result in trauma. Here's what trauma is. Here's what the nervous system is. Here's kind of what healing, like a kind of a different way of looking at healing in terms of this like ongoing process that happens in the little tiny moments of life. And then as we notice, or as we start this process of healing, like living in a healing body, not a healed body, a healing body, here's some different things that we might start to notice are impacted positively. So I think there's nine themes and I, and each one I'll take apart. So we'll use like say embodiment. And so we look at like, what is the impact of a high control religion on the body on embodiment? What does it look like to live in a healing body in this specific area? I do give some practices We do like there is, I uh, kind of crowdsourced for some answers, you know, like on social media platforms, I'm able to use my own story, client anecdotes, you know, all sorts of different things to hopefully make the book accessible. While it does, the theme is like evangelical, fundamentalist Christianity. It's not focusing on necessarily the specific teachings of like fundamentalism or Calvinism or anything like that. So it is very applicable to many different people, regardless of the religion that you're coming out of, or even really regardless of like a cult or high control group or family church or, you know, wherever you might be coming out of, I wanted to make it general enough so that it, it wouldn't necessarily like matter what quote unquote religion you came out of. It could still be helpful. Wow. Why did you, what made did you want to write it? Why did you decide, you know, book Avenue, as opposed to all yeah. of the many things you're doing. I've always wanted to write books. That's just like, since I was little and writing journaling has been like the thing that has been, I, I call it my spiritual practice. It's the only one that I've maintained throughout the entirety of my life of just journaling. And that's been my safety, right? Like where I'm able to show up and be real. So the writing piece has always been something that's been just really central and grounding for me. I actually wasn't planning on writing this book. If I'm being perfectly honest, I, my agent who's wonderful, my literary agent is wonderful. And she actually approached me and I was like, yeah, I want to write a book. I just didn't know how to do it. And so we kind of threw around a few different ideas. I actually had written a book and it was my own story of like how high control religion really kind of groomed me for a domestically violent relationship and getting out of that and religion and healing. And she told me, she goes, this is great. I think we should publish it someday. I think the book that you need to write is this over here, like using your doctoral research. And this is somebody who I deeply trust. Like she's got, she knows the book world and she's like, this resource doesn't exist. People are hungry for something, not a guide of telling them what to do, but just knowing that there's something that they can tangibly hold and say, I'm not alone. This thing is real. (laughs) What I'm experiencing is real. There is life outside of it, but let's talk about what's impacted and what healing looks like. And so I trusted her (laughs) and came up with the proposal for this book. So I am, and now I'm very glad that this was the book to be written because it just, there's, There's some wonderful books that are coming out that are people's stories, which I think are so wonderful, but there really hasn't been a lot in terms of resources. 
what trauma truly is, what the nervous system is, the, how religion can impact the nervous system, neuroscience. And so I, I want it to be comprehensive, a little, a little bit like the body keeps the score, but for religious trauma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That sounds amazing. I'm very, very excited to read it when it does come out and it's October, right? Yep. So it'll be October 17th, 2023, but it is available for pre-sale. So it can be purchased. You can go to my website. There's like a little book tab and it has information about the book as well as like links to all the different places that you can purchase it. But you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstores, which I highly encourage, or you can buy it directly from the publisher. There's a link on my website and it's like half price. So I'm going to look into that. I have a nice little indie bookstore that I like here. So I love that. Yes. I always encourage people, please support your local bookshops because we need to, right? And there's also on my website, I have a link to bookshop.org. So if you purchase books off of there, then it also goes to your local bookshop, which is really, really nice. But yeah, it's available for pre-order. I believe it will be coming out in audiobook as well. I won't have the final details of that until late summer, but we're getting that set up because oh. I know it's a great way for some people to read it. Well, I'm really excited about it. Congratulations. Final question. That's just a fun question. Yeah. I'm asking on the podcast to everybody. Uh, a book, a movie, a TV show, a song, some form of art, any type that is meaningful to you right now. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to grab the book because I always forget the title. One second. But it like totally, it totally applies. So this is the book that I've been reading and okay. it is called The Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin. And he's a music producer. And it's all about creativity, but not in like our traditional sense of what we think about. I'm an artist. I'm going to create a painting. I'm going to create a song. He's talking about how creativity is really the essence and he's not prescriptive at all, but really tuning. Like, it's so funny. I was telling my friend this morning, like if I read this book 15 years ago, when he talks about source, capital S, I would have attributed it to God and the Holy Spirit, right? Oh yeah. I looked to God for, you know, how to determine this or that. And now I read it as like nervous system, like this, like individual and also collective nervous system. And I was like, yeah, that does color how I perceive things, colors how the world perceives things. And yet when I can let that go, there's so much beauty that, you know, kind of bubbles up. So I love books like that. Yeah. And it, it, like the chapters are super short. So it's almost like I'm reading it like devotional every morning, which that part is a little, but, but I like it. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. I love that so much. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for the yeah. shout out to it. Cause I love books like that. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you want to say as we wind down, wrap up? I really love the term second wave fundamentalism. I think we need to make it a thing. All right. <laughs> no, I'm not we, plagiarizing it from someone. I was like, did I read never, I've never heard it before. So I'm not sure, but I think it's such a powerful discussion to have. I know, you know, I, I, I don't know how long, like years wise, you've been in this space, like the deconstruction space, like online and stuff. I, I guess I've probably been in it for like, four years. And so you can see kind of this like ebb and flow and like, as certain people kind of like rise to positions of prominence and fall and, you know, all these things or whatever. 
And uh, it's very, it's just funny. Cause I'm like, it's not funny, but it's also just like, yeah. it's the same thing. It's, the yeah. same thing. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting thing to observe. Cause I try to not get involved in any of it. I just kind of sit back and, you know, eat my popcorn as I'm watching things. Yes. Explode. But I think that, you know, one of the things that we easily forget, and this is just very human is that you and I may have been in this space for years at this point. And there's many other people that have been as well, but there's also many people that have been in this space for one day or one week or one year, right? Like who just are at the very beginning of this process of untangling and walking away from this and trying to figure out what the hell just happened. Mm. And, and so I think that it's so good that we're like having these conversations and understanding like for lack of a better term, where we messed up at the beginning of this like mass exodus out of evangelicalism, you know, within the last five, six, seven years, so that it doesn't repeat itself again, because the person who's been out for one day or one week or one month, don't want them to be terrified the way that I had many clients terrified too. And three years ago of going, oh my gosh, what is this? So I love that we're having these conversations and recognizing what we're calling second wave fundamentalism so that we stop the madness, <laughs> like that we recognize like what's happening and don't do further harm to already traumatized mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I, I guess that just like really just starts with awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and engaging in the conversation and that's, yeah. it's just where it starts. There's not a right answer. And like, we are going to fix this and we're going to do these things and we're going to stop it. Yeah. That's what I want. That's what I know. I want. <laughs> but, but just, yeah, being willing to engage in the conversation is, is a, is a good starting point. So I appreciate that. It was actually really relaxing for me to just right. like talk about this thing. That's like, I know it's a thing. Yeah. And I'm like, and there's nothing I can do. So. I know. I know. It's, you know, it's so interesting because like, just, you know, like I said, I've been around this space for a while. You've been around this space for a while. And it's not that I don't take a stand on anything. I just am very selective with what I post on social media because I understand, like I have a position of influence and my job is not to get you to think like me. Like I, you know, and yet I also want to make sure that like people know yeah, like, I don't think this is okay. Or I don't think, you know, and so I've gotten a lot of like pushback from certain people that they're like, you are not a safe person because you won't take a side on X, Y, Z issue. And I'm just like, if you look at my entire history, when have I ever done it? If I have a problem with somebody, I will go to them directly. Always. I don't call people out. I do not publicly punish. I will go to you directly. I will share with you like, Hey, not sure what's going on here. We will talk about it. I will never tell other people that I did that because that's just not important. And I don't like, I just, I don't do like the online kabooms. And it's so interesting then to watch, to be like, I also don't have trolls on my page. I also don't have people fighting in the comments sections. I also don't have cancellation campaigns against me. And it's not because I'm just like people pleasing, you know, whatever, but it's like people see the drama and the bigness and like in, on the one hand, it like matches their activation already, but you just can't stay there forever. And, and so then it's like, you have to find people where you go, Oh, okay. I can breathe a little bit. And inevitably all of those people that cause that like major activation, Mm -hmm. like kind of fade away. 
disappear. Yeah. They're, and wow. the, the unfortunate part is that they had set themselves up as the gurus of, you know, the deconstruction or evangelical land. And then people are like, now what do I do? Right. And so it's just like, in some ways, maybe it couldn't have been avoided, almost like you're creating a new society. <laughs> But like, like we're not there anymore. Yes. Apocalyptic. Yeah. Who's 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 gonna lead us? Who's gonna lead us past the past the zombies? I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I just feel like the the motto that has been coming to me since some of these things have occurred in the past couple months mm-hmm. is uh, the tortoise and the hare the tortoise being slow and steady steady and slow that's the way we always go I was like that's just like the on repeat in my brain it's, it's true it's and I I know I got this out of religion but it's like that idea of like you could be like a mile wide and an inch deep or like really create a sense of depth and like be known for somebody who's advocating for survivors and isn't going to just you know intentionally activate people like we're going to stand for what we're going to stand for but we're not going to like demand that you think the same as I do exactly you know what I mean and I think it's important that the people that are doing that slow steady work like keep doing it yeah 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 there's a place for that too and I think that'll pay off it'll grow the depth of your community I'm really grateful for you. Really grateful for all the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. I'm sure we'll talk soon. Bye, Catherine. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org slash support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.